Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week is the deputy editor of Spike magazine, Tom Slater. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, the first question we always, always ask is, tell us a little bit about how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, sure. So um, I found out about Spiked, where I currently work quite young, actually. So when I was about 17, I was involved in a programme that Spiked set up to give state school kids in London a kind of leg up into journalism. So I met a lot of them through doing that um, and basically just kind of kept in contact. Originally, I was got into um, kind of cultural journalism, things like that, but slowly over the years got more and more interested in politics, got more and more kind of radicalised and I think especially my kind of experience at university as far as looking around for what sort of politics I'd like to sign up for and not really finding much of interest on either left or right, um, Spikes increasingly seemed to make a lot of sense to me and seemed to be something I wanted to be a part of basically. And for those people who don't know Spikes or haven't encountered it, what is Spiked and what, how could you sum up them politically? So I think our political bent is really, we come out of the left and yet increasingly find ourselves raging against the left, um, yeah. which I think actually a lot of people um, increasingly are finding themselves insofar as some of our kind of foundational principles are things like freedom of speech, which I know we'll be talking about, um, democracy, um, the idea that society, societies that are constantly striving to produce more and to produce a kind of higher standard of living <coughs> for everyone is something that's... Um, is something that should be the main goal, and yet increasingly it feels like the left are incredibly censorious, incredibly anti-democratic, incredibly environmentalist in the worst kind of way, which seems to be mainly about kind of dampening down production, saying that people's lifestyles have gone too far, etc. And I think really what that whole kind of process tells us that increasingly it feels like the left-right divide doesn't give you very much, it doesn't explain very much about where you come from because these terms have been become so distorted but the way I always describe it is that effectively we're kind of for freedom democracy and, and plenty and I think that's really what our guiding principles are whether you want to label that however you choose basically and why do you think it is I'm not because I say to people oh you know we're doing a YouTube channel we've mm. got so and so on from spite and there tends to be a sort of distrust of the magazine mm. Occasionally, even mumblings or rumourings that it's sort of alt-right or alt-right linked. Yeah. This is something that I find um, pretty disgraceful, actually, because we've had that tag kind of thrown at us a couple of times. And the one thing, the first thing is that every single thing we've ever written about the alt-right has been absolutely scathing. You know, we abhor identity politics of all forms, whether that's kind of white identitarianism or any of the other forms you see on a university campus, for instance. And we've been denouncing that movement in no uncertain terms for a very long time. And I can't work out whether it, the way in which that label was thrown around is just willfully malicious or it's just incredibly ignorant because historically we've always been pro-immigration, pro-universalism, the idea that racial boundaries, gender boundaries, all these things should kind of melt away. And I think that it can only be someone who either just wants to try and smear us <laughs> or someone who has never actually read anything that we have possibly said, but it is interesting. I think it says something about the times that we're in that that label seems to be being thrown about so liberally, unfortunately. I think it's both, isn't it? It's both people who haven't read a single thing you've written <laughs> and yeah. want to smear you. Yeah. Right? I think that, that's where that combination comes from. Mm. You mentioned university campuses. One of the things we really wanted to talk to you about is the Unsafe Space Tour, which mm. you did, I think it was in last year? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And tell us a little bit about that, what that involved, how, how that went. Mm. So the Unsafe Space Tour was um, a project that we did in the US. Um, we'd been doing a lot of work on the issue of free speech on campus in the UK, and we, but we really wanted to kind of take it to the heart of where it was happening, because as much as these debates are really 
raging on UK campuses, things are even more intense over there, even though it's a country where obviously you have this tradition of the First Amendment and it's seen as kind of more of a foundational principle than it might be here. Um, so we put together this tour. We went to, um, went to Harvard University. We were at American University, although we got kicked out. There's a story in that in a second. Um, we went to Rutgers University in New Jersey, and I'm probably forgetting some others. But it was a, the aim of it was, first of all, to kind of take head on the issue of free speech on campus, what that was all about. What does the rise of identity politics mean in relation mm. to this? What does the rise of a new, increasingly illiberal form of feminism play into this? All these kind of different touchstones. But I think the other thing we wanted to do, kind of leading off from your question on the alt-right actually, was to try and reclaim the free speech argument from people who were using it to incredibly cynical and self-promoting ends. You know, this was the time in which you had a lot of these kind of right-wing trolls, wind-up merchants going to university campuses, upsetting students and then making hay out of it. And one of the really unfortunate things that was going on, particularly in the US, was that um, the debate about freedom of speech just became a left-right culture war. And if you were in favour of freedom of speech, it's because you wanted to basically shout obscenities at minorities is what phrase took it and that the left were entirely just these kind of snowflakes who had no idea what free speech was it's not really like that so we got together this um, series of speakers who we felt really excelled at kind of putting the kind of liberal to libertarians even progressive case for freedom of speech so along with our own Brendan O'Neill who spoke at a couple of events Stephen Pinker from Harvard spoke um, a guy called Camille Foster spoke on our identity politics panel Mark Lilla a few others and so the, the whole aim of it really was to try and be upfront in sort of tackling this problem of censorship of protest against speakers people dislike identity politics etc but to do it in such a way that drew out what we think is some of the more important arguments for it which i think are classically liberal and even progressive um, which at that particular time seemed to be almost entirely absent from the debate it felt like i mean why is it do you think that the right wing you, you know the moment you talk about freedom of speech everybody goes well you know that's just you know that's mm. just right wing people when, you know, and people, a lot of people would say that there's no problem with freedom of speech, particularly in this country, when you compare it with, I don't know, Venezuela, China, whatever mm. else. Why do you think people associate freedom of speech with the right wing? I think the first thing is to say that it feels like, broadly speaking, the kind of censorship on a kind of state level, as well as the sort of censorship you see on a university campus, just because of the way things are at the moment, it tends to be people either on a campus, could just be anyone who's kind of, you know, to the, to the right of centre, effectively, finding yeah. themselves being censored because of the political, cultural, most university campuses. And then I think, broadly speaking, I think people think of censorship ultimately as something which is reserved for far-right nutcases and racists, you know, and yeah. that is, there's, there's some truth in that. Um, but nevertheless, I think the other aspect to it is there has been this um, profound kind of confusion as to, first of all, the fact that if you censor anyone in any circumstance, that there is a point at which that will be used against people you happen to agree with and I think we're seeing that play out in relation to some kind of old feminists finding themselves on the receiving end of censorship etc um, but the other thing I think is the kind of the sort of historical illiteracy of it really it doesn't really take much for um, a political culture to change and if you kind of create the means through which um, what are deemed to be extreme views can be snuffed out either by the state or by um, you know by campaigns or by university administrations or whatever, it won't be long until those same tools are used against you. And I think what's kind of interesting about kind of even characters on the kind of US alt-right or at least alt-light is they're increasingly kind of getting people shut down. You know, James Gunn, this guy who was directing the Guardians of the Galaxy series, effectively a bunch of kind of alt-light journalists dug up his old tweets and got him sacked because this dynamic, say, on social media where things you might have said, jokes you might have made in the past that were offensive can be used to effectively get you sacked, that cudgel can be swung by the other side just as easily. So I think it's 
it tends to be, it does, I think it's a combination of where the political culture is at, at the moment, but also, unfortunately, just an incredible kind of short-sightedness on behalf of a lot of left-wingers these days, it feels like. Well, that's why I always say on that issue, is like, once you invent this weapon mm. of destroying people's lives and livelihoods because they made some joke or whatever, you don't get to control who uses it. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of people on the left are now finding it being used against them, and I don't agree with it being used in either direction. Mm. But I think once you, once you make it legitimate, to discredit somebody on the basis of a tweet they they posted at three o'clock in the mm. morning or whatever, that's 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 then becomes the norm. That mm. that becomes the way that war the culture was waged. No, exactly. I think we're we're really starting to see that that's going on both sides now. You know, if you kind of compare the Roseanne situation in the U.S., where she obviously tweets this kind of pretty racist stuff, effectively, um, and then instantly there's this very concerted effort to get a sack. You saw the flip side of that with the James Gunn thing. Now, we could argue who are those two people we find more amiable, who we might agree with more, and I'm sure where all of us would stand on that, to yeah. be honest. But nevertheless, it's quite clear that as soon as you create this dynamic, it will be exploited by the other side. And it, what's, I think the most um, uh, irritating thing about all of this is the fact that it's a lot often people who claim to be very radical, who claim to be um, about kind of really challenging the consensus, etc., who are very keen on censorship, which to me is insane. If you go about branding everyone you dislike an extremist and insisting they be shut down, then if you are someone who's trying to further radical ideas, that's something which is an, an incredible threat to yourself. And I think what it actually shows is that vast sections of the left today, even though they like to pose as very radical, I think the fact that they're so comfortable with censorship speaks to the fact that deep down, whether they realise it or not, they're not actually saying very much that's actually that challenging to the status quo and to those in power. More often than not, they seem to be on the side of people who want to bolster state power to do things that, and to crush people they disagree with. So I think it's quite revealing on that level as well to some extent. And do you think students have become more censorious? I th mm, it's, a, it's a tricky one because I, the last thing I want to do is kind of smear all students and I think yeah. this kind of I'll do it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you fucking stay up <laughs> you don't do any work anyway sorry go on they're lazy they're yeah. great the from their entire yeah. as we do the show <laughs> yeah I know the UKIP mate <laughs> I think I think it's definitely uh, the it, the kind of extremes of student politics are becoming more extreme um, yeah. and they're becoming more vocal and I think the one thing that has really been the difference is the fact that where there was always other people in the room, could be student politics, could be people within a university administration, who would kind of stick up for themselves, who would say, look, we've invited this speaker, but you can't just on the basis of a small group of you who are protesting this shut this down because there are other people who want to hear this perspective, challenge this perspective, etc. You know, university administrations would previously, you know, consider free speech to be a kind of guiding value and res would resist attempts to kind of censor. You know, even up until about 10, 15 years ago, there would always be these arguments and these battles, but the extent to which these small groups of campaigners could succeed was always somewhat more limited because there were at least enough people willing to stick up for freedom of speech. I think the big problem is that a lot of these um, student protesters, these kind of intense identitarians, people who are really thin-skinned, they've been given the moral authority in these situations. People even are really concerned about disagreeing with them because they know the abuse that could be held at them, etc. So there's, a, there's an element, I think, of kind of cowardice on behalf of a lot of university administrations, say. And I think in relation to students more broadly, I think there's a very strong 
conformist climate, which makes them more likely to either just keep their mouth shut or just kind of leave them to it. So I think that whilst these people have always kind of existed, I think the big change now is, unfortunately, there's just so little pushback against them. And I think that has allowed them to kind of chalk up more wins insofar as censoring people, um, but also for their ideas to become more and more strange <laughs> and more and more extreme because there's no one really in the room to kind of temper and challenge them. It feels like. So what you're saying really is not the students have become more censorious, it's that the silent majority has become increasingly more silent. I think so. I mean, I, you do start to see those things changing. I mean, because a lot of the work that we've been doing, particularly in the UK, has been directly with students. We've run kind of um, tours of universities, working with students to set up debates before. Um, we've um, worked with them on developing our university rankings, which we've done over the last four years, which looks at free speech policies, etc. And there is a growing number of them, of left, right and neither, who are increasingly um, appalled by this and they kind of recognise that a lot of this really holds them in contempt in particular because if you're going around saying that we can't have the speaker on campus because it will hurt you, it will, it, will leave, it will effectively either hurt you psychologically or you might be stupid enough to be won over by it. People are really reacting to that in a kind of visceral way and I also think because of the fact that the bar for censorship on campus has been getting lower and lower. I mean up until about 10 years ago it was really only about kind of far-right nutcases that this debate was had out but you know as of a few years ago the stories you're seeing in the newspaper is Birmingham University banning sombreros and I think this has created a kind of because it's cultural back. appropriation because it's cultural appropriation Let, let's play this uh, mm. pro, uh, this oppression bingo <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what are some other examples of things that have happened I'm trying to think so there's there's a lot around fancy dress which is quite interesting also cultural appropriation it's, it's a strange mix of cultural appropriation and cultural insensitivity I guess so just telling people they can't dress up as gangsters telling people which I well, don't know because that's offensive to gangsters that's offensive to gangsters etc I mean they're never that, quite that is definitely a minority group that needs a lot of protection well exactly no one's really speaking up on their behalf. But I think <laughs> the, the gangsters, what's interesting about a lot of these kind of calls to censorship, I mean, I don't know who they've got in mind when they say that, but it's almost like in the thing about when people are obsessed with this cultural appropriation issue is that they actually reaffirm stereotypes in a yeah. stretch kind of way. Right. They're suggesting this will be, you know, offensive to XYZ group. I think it's the thing that really makes, um, not so much laugh, but worry, I guess, is the fact that you've even had... It seems like so many kind of people in student unions who obviously do the lion's share of this kind of censorship um, on campus, they almost have so little self-awareness that you have ridiculous situations like no gangster costumes or things that we've been saying, seeing recently over the last couple of years, which is free speech societies, for instance, being blocked from being set up. And I think my favourite example was a couple of years ago at the University of um, Oxford where a bunch of students got together in response to the kind of censorious climate on campus and wanted to start a free speech magazine called No Offence. Yeah. And it was banned from the Freshers' Fair <laughs> and reported to the police. Yeah. And I think that's just, I, I think, goes to show the fact that so much that we see on campus, it's so ridiculous yeah. that it's often tempting, I think, whether you're a student there or actually just looking on to think, why does it matter? But I think, actually, it speaks to how unchecked a lot of this has gone because we're not even talking about things that anyone with a modicum of common sense would think were a problem anymore. It's really gotten that bad, it feels like. I mean, how much of this is students, you know, uh, overreacting? And let's be fair, we were all 18, 19 at one <laughs> yeah. time. Uh, none of us would ever probably, if asked, ever want to have a conversation with ourselves at 18, 19. And how much of this is something more sinister? Mm. Oh, I think in, in one sense, I think it's important to say that, of course, students are always going to be, I like to think, the kind of sharp end of a lot of what's going on in politics at the moment. They yeah. tend to like to be radical, they're idealistic, um, they 
you know, you could say kind of take things to a kind of just a slightly further extreme. They, they haven't been beaten down by life. To a realistic submission. Yeah, exactly. To the vicissitudes of fate. But yeah, definitely yeah. something yeah. like Do that. Do some sure. temping, dickhead. Don't <laughs> come back to me and tell me how, what life's like. All right, mate, all right. You, you, can, you can vote for UKIP. You just don't need to go on the show. So. Yeah. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with voting for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's definitely part of it, and I think the the issue is that, of course, there's a generational element to this. Um, yeah. It's quite clear that there is a cohort. You could see it from kind of millennials onwards down to the kind of younger generations who have been socialised into a climate which is very hostile to freedom of speech. Um, hate speech laws, for instance, in this country have been tightened up over the last 15, 20 years intensively. Whether you agree or disagree with them, I think that sets a kind of precedent in people's minds that there is certain opinions, certain views, certain statements which are so abhorrent that they shouldn't be heard. I think that's one thing which is quite clear. Um, I think there's also the question of kind of um, multiculturalism as a kind of policy of government insofar as not multiculturalism in relation to diversity that everyone enjoys and everyone um, is most people are relaxed about but the kind of idea that there are very distinct cultural and even racial groups who have certain ideas and that it's kind of rude to discuss them to challenge them or to kind of assume that we might through talking with each other kind of develop a kind of common forum that's been an idea that I think a lot of young people have been fed and I think makes people very nervous and more likely to cry Islamophobia when there's a discussion about religion etc and I think the other thing is that there is a kind of culture of sort of um almost self-esteem management that seems to be driven into young people from a young age insofar as the idea that um, words really hurt, the kind of ramping up of various kind of um, anti-bullying policies, etc. Things that Claire Fox, a previous guest on your show, has written a lot about. And I think that kind of feeds the very, in some cases, kind of narcissistic character of a lot of campus censorship, which is like, this offends me personally, it harms me as an individual, and therefore no one should be allowed <laughs> to hear it. So I think there's different factors. But I think the, the, co the common thing to all of those things is the fact that these are things that they were socialised into. They're not entirely of their making. I mean, if people are going around assuming that this generation just kind of emerged out of the womb with kind of blue hair and crazy opinions, I, I think that's a big kind of <laughs> dereliction of duty, you know. They, they didn't spring out of nowhere. Um, and I think you can really perceive the cultural trends which have fed into a situation in which a small but, but quite vocal minority of students think it's entirely acceptable to basically crush opinions they dislike. I think the kind of progression of that is becoming more and more clear. Well, Claire Fox made that point, actually, that, you know, if there, if there is an element of snowflakery around, mm. it's not the fault of them, of mm. the students, of the young people. It's the fault of the parents, the education system, mm. who've made them that way. Um, and uh, I don't know, when you talk about uh, sensitivity and trigger warnings, I don't know if you saw there was an article recently about a study that came out, mm. which basically shows that if you convince people that uh, uh, something they're about to read is going mm. to hurt them, they then become more prone to being hurt by that thing. Mm. So trigger warnings are actually counterproductive mm. in that they essentially brainwash people into thinking that the material that they might have been triggered by mm. will definitely trigger them. Mm. And then they become much more fragile and much less resilient. Mm. So do you think this culture is, is going to have long-term repercussions for our society? I think it will insofar as I think it just it poisons politics I think in so many different ways because I think if you're going around with this kind of intense sense of sensitivity as well as the, the identity politics which I think really attaches itself very firmly to the question of censorship the number one reason cited most times for why a certain speaker on campus should be banned is that they offend xyz um, religious cultural or you know social sexual orientation group etc that's the main 
um, justification for these two things. And I think the consequences of that, even though we should be careful about being too alarmist and suggesting that you know everyone's going to be marching around crushing anyone who you know doesn't toe the party line in five years' time, is that I think that breeds a certain level of fragility on behalf of people, as you say. It, it basically encourages people to feel aggrieved, upset by things that would even wouldn't even bother people, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But I think the other byproduct of it is that because of the identity politics itself and feeds it, is that it's serving, I think, to really reify a lot of the kind of racial divisions that um, a lot of people struggle so far to get over. I mean, if you're constantly suggesting that certain particular groups are incredibly fragile and it's all the, also all the fault of a different group over here, that's only going to foster the kind of tensions that um, mercifully have been kind of fading away over the last 10 years. So I think that, even though we shouldn't be too alarmist about this, I think the consequences of that um, for politics, for free debate, and also just for how people feel around each other in a social situation at university or wherever, I can see that having quite damaging effects. But surely you, you do need to draw the line somewhere because, I mean, could you really have like a Richard Spencer coming and mm. doing a speech? I know, I think he's banned from the UK anyway, mm. but certainly in America going to do a speech at Harvard. Mm. I mean, there, there has to be free speech, but certainly aren't there limits to it? And don't we have to no platform certain people? Mm. Well, I think, I think the thing about free speech is that it is for all or, for, or it's for none at all. Because as soon as you make qualifications on it, as soon as you say some people are so extreme that they shouldn't be allowed to hurt, then that what is deemed to be extreme will be something which is up, which will become a political football, which can be expanded, which can be applied to people um, on the other end of the spectrum or whatever. I think it, it's, it's the slippery slope in, in aspects. And I think the other point in that is that it's a really important progressive argument for freedom of speech throughout the years is that free speech is the best means through which you challenge and uproot bigotry. I mean, this is a point that um, Frederick Douglass, the former slave and abolitionist, made um, in the US in this um, speech or this article rather, it's called A Plea for Free Speech in Boston, where he makes this very powerful point that if free speech in the US was allowed to exist um, because it was very tampered by um, various kind of mobs who would shut down abolitionist meetings, etc., he said that if free speech was allowed to flourish in the US, then it would break every chain in the South and banish the auction block. That was always a kind of foundational point. And I think it's kind of common sense. I mean, you can't tackle a bigotry that you've, you are effectively pretending doesn't exist by refusing to engage with it. But I think the problem that we're in now is actually something a little bit more complicated because the thing about characters like Richard Spencer is that they're ultimately incredibly marginal, strange, odd and very unrepresentative people. Mm. But because there is this culture of censorship and of wanting to shut these people down and also wanting to constantly kind of point to them as proof that society is still as toxic as it might have been in any other era, you make them far more prominent than they need be. And I think he's an interesting example because he was trying to give a speech at um, a university in Florida about a year or so ago, I think. Um, and the response was so ridiculous. You know, they spent about half a million dollars or something on protecting this event. <laughs> there was police all in the streets. There were people being turned away. Um, and about just over a dozen of his supporters showed up, completely surrounded by protesters who were kind of shouting him down. And there is part of me that thinks, whilst, of course, um, whenever you come across views that disgusting, you want to rail against them, you want to protest them, people should. That's how you really, um, that's how you really uproot and challenge bigotry. But at the same time, I think there's a byproduct which we're kind of creating folk devils who don't need to be puffed up at the moment. And I do think when you look at the likes of Richard Spencer, when you look at these kind of alt-right lunatics, it seems like a more fitting response would just be allow them to kind of like zig hard to each other in drafty rooms by themselves. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a kind of question of proportion here, I think. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the, the moment at which you draw the line, you, the more you make these problems worse, i.e. someone like Richard Spencer, rather than better, it feels like. Let, let me imagine for a second if I was a progressive, censorious student. The, the counter-argument that I might put to you would be, 
over the last 20 years, mm. the kind of things that it's acceptable to say to somebody mm. have changed, right? And that has coincided with a period of time when there's been political correctness, mm. there's been an increasing sensitivity, we've all had a little bit of extra you know, awareness of other people. Isn't the fact that we're now less willing to insult minorities mm. and women and other people, isn't that a reflection of the fact that this movement has been a positive thing for society? Mm. Well, I think the thing about political correctness is that people often attribute it to things that have kind of nothing to do with. First of all, they kind of conflate it with manners. And no one's against manners. You know? <laughs> no yeah. one is against the fact that um, people don't address each other in kind of horrendous ways. But also political correctness, as a kind of, broadly speaking, I mean, how you define it is, it's becomes a bit of a bloated term. It's thrown around a lot. But broadly speaking, a kind of move, particularly within academia, to suggest that if you effectively demonise certain words and try to snuff them out, that that would have the knock-on effect of making society kind of more harmonious, you know, in some sort of way. I think it effectively tries to take credit for a process of integration, of anti-racist activism, of society slowly becoming more at ease with itself, and kind of give it to people in the ivory tower. You know, the, the fact of the matter is the reason people don't shout racial obscenities down the streets at people is not because of the fact that some academic went around shushing them. You know, it's because views have changed. Certain groups have been considered, who have been considered beyond the pale for a long time, but nevertheless have been successfully shown to be as toxic as they really are and people are more integrated people are more relaxed around one each one another etc so i think the thing about the political correctness thing is that it's trying to basically claim credit for a process of change and anti-racist activism and just society becoming more and more integrated which i think it really had nothing to do with and in its current form i think is actually driving more division than it is actually kind of alleviating it insofar as making things so hypersensitive, so over the top, microaggressions, etc., that actually I think have the opposite effect, which is to make people feel more nervous around engaging people who aren't like them, um, rather than more relaxed about them. What's a microaggression? So a microaggression, for those who might not I know. I feel really old. It's easy to go... No, no what's, I don't know. What, oh. No, it's like, it's like if I ask you where you're from when yeah. we first meet. Yeah. Right, that's implying that you're foreign. Okay. Therefore... It's implying that you are other. Yeah. Therefore, it's me trying to undermine your self-esteem and make you feel bad about yourself. And All right. Okay. So they're just behaving really like they've just smoked too much weed and they're just getting <laughs> paranoid. There's a huge element of paranoia. To <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing where, it, to me, if you're being really cynical about it, you would say it's the problem where it feels like the as increasingly society becomes more kind of egalitarian, you have to find more and more small things to be upset about. I mean, some people refer to it as like the kind of St. George in retirement syndrome where he slayed the dragon, now he's got to go around slaying smaller and smaller animals. You know? <laughs> Mice and other rodents. Lizards. There is yeah. a bit of that to it, but the, effectively it kind of comes down to this question of, you know, some universities in America have even kind of drawn up lists of things that you shouldn't say to an ethnic minority person, where you're from being one of them. Some of it is things that you could say are kind of like, clumsy with a kind of racial tinge to them, telling someone who's black that they're very articulate, <laughs> things yeah, like this, yeah, yeah. which we could all say are a bit awkward, a bit unpleasant, not always said with the malice that some people would like to attach to them, but also things that I think broadly speaking people can kind of challenge and deal with in a sort of friendly situation. Yeah. But then in the US in particular, there's been some universities which have drawn up lists to them. I think they're quite corrosive, first of all, because of the fact that um, what it's effectively preaching is a strange kind of racial etiquette, that you should treat people not naturally as you would treat any human being, but that you would adjust your behaviour in order to treat them um, in a particular way and with kid gloves. And I think that's pretty patronising and kind of strange. But I think the other thing it does is that it's kind of... It, microaggressions are actually a pretty 
useful example of how identity politics actually reifies racial differences because on one university campus, I think it was the University of California, which campus I forget, um, some of their microaggressions, including saying things like, America is a melting pot and I don't believe in race. <laughs> <laughs> because that was deemed to be incredibly insensitive to someone who might be still experiencing oppression, etc. So I think it is ridiculous. Um, and thankfully, it's not quite as um, widespread, particularly in the UK, as it is in other parts of um, campus life. Um, but I think it's actually quite a useful example of how racial differences, racial tensions on some sort of level, are kind of being ginned up again by people who claim to be in favour of the opposite. So it's I feel like um, so far we've basically, certainly I don't have any cause to disagree with anything that you mm. said. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because a, a lot of our audience uh, I know from experience are people who are concerned about the level of immigration into this country, uh, people who, are, who, who, who might be aligned with everything that Spiked mm. writes about and talks about. But on that issue, I think there might be quite a fundamental difference. So why don't you give us your, your best defense of, mm. of mass immigration and uh, almost, uh, I don't know if you're pro-open borders quite, mm. but... Your view on immigration, anyway. Well, I think the, the point that Spike's always made historically in relation to immigration is a kind of question of, um, of freedom, and it's the, the ability of people to kind of flourish wherever they are around the world and to be able to be on the move. And it's also a kind of question of so many of the arguments against immigration historically, and particularly in the current period, have often had to do with the kind of low horizons of that particular society, one of which is the idea that we, there's some people who just can't be integrated. You know, that's a kind of classic, you know, almost like Powell-like kind of idea that yeah. has kind of existed. Um, there's also the kind of broader idea that there's only so much a nation can produce, you know, that the, some place is kind of full. An argument that used to be made by outright racialists and is increasingly made by kind of green people these days <laughs> in relation to the question of immigration. But I think the thing that's actually complicated the argument of immigration more broadly is the question of citizenship because a lot of the mass immigration we've experienced has not only never been um, done with the say-so of the electorate, you know, European free movement. This was never something that there was a referendum on that people knew that they were signing up to. This was always a kind of elite process through which that was introduced. Um, and similarly, I think it's come hand in hand with a process by which what it means to be a citizen in a sort of democratic country has been increasingly undermined. Um, and the idea that a nation should have a particular political culture and a centre which people from various different origins and roots can kind of meet in the middle and understand themselves as part of one entity has increasingly been painted as something suspect. You know, the idea that there should just be diversity for its own sake rather than some sort of common culture. So I think actually a lot of the anxieties around immigration, I think they've been entirely decoupled in the large part from the kind of racist arguments of the past. I think that's quite clear in many respects. Um, you know, concern about immigration has maintained, largely speaking, over the last few years, even as um, racial animus continue to that's tumble. It, that's exactly it, um, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, people's uh, hostility towards immigrants mm. has been dropping rapidly mm. at the same time as concerns about immigration levels have been rising mm. exactly. quite quickly. And I, I, that's, to me, that's a fascinating argument, which brings mm. us uh, straight on to Brexit, mm. which is something that, we, we, because this will go out a few weeks from now, yeah. we, we have no idea... Who is, who's going to be the prime minister of this country? <laughs> who's going to be the foreign secretary? Yeah. Is there going to be a Brexit? Is there not going to be a mm. Brexit? But one of the things, and we've talked about it so much on the show, is that mm. how, as an immigrant myself to mm. this country, how frustrating I find that the argument about Brexit mm. has been confused as an argument about xenophobia and racism, mm. when I think it really is very little to do with that. Yeah. Uh, but one of the, so we don't want to get too much into Brexit, into the nuance of it. But mm. we, we talked before we started about the idea that Brexit is a good indicator of the fact that mainstream opinions mm. or the majority opinions in society 
are becoming unpalatable in polite mm. society. Tell us, tell us what you think about that. No, I think that's one of the things that was most revealing and kind of shocking about the Brexit vote. I think the comedian Jeff Norcott's made this, made this point, or at least this joke before, is that you're in a situation where the majority position is the one that's demonised. That's really weird, <laughs> you know, yeah. because again, the, the whole idea of, say, free speech, for example, is kind of prefaced on the idea of the fact that the mainstream can look after itself. What most people think, what is broadly speaking a consensus, is not something that needs the protection of free speech. It's all about the kind of batty ideas on the edges, um, which need that protection because they're always going to be the ones which are demonised. But I think what we've seen recently is, again, the majority of the electorate in a particular referendum vote for something in numbers that you know we haven't seen for any other vote in British political history. And yet it's treated as something aberrant, strange, vicious, racist, and something which must be kind of crushed at all costs. And I think whilst on the one hand it shows the fact that um, we're in this bizarre position that the majority position is demonised, but really that is born of the fact that the gap between the electorate and the people they elect has become so wide that not only do they not agree on something, but also they, the elite has a tendency to assume the worst about those people in every single situation. And just the simple fact that 52% um, in the referendum voted leave, whilst about 75% of MPs voted remain, I think tells you everything about that. And what's been even more shocking about the kind of post-Brexit vote situation is the fact that you would think that given there was this huge blow to the political class's authority, all of the main parties advocating remain, the country voting leave, that that would force some kind of reassessment for them to think maybe we're not in touch with the people who vote for us, maybe there's something that we're missing about people wanting more control over their own lives and their own societies. The sneering actually got worse <laughs> and it got more explicit and it got more extreme and it's been going on like that for over two years now. So I think what that bizarre situation we find ourselves in where the majority position is demonised is largely a product of the fact um, that the elites have been becoming ever more distant, it feels like, from the public and increasingly not caring about that fact. Um, and I think that's really, aside from the question of how and if and when Brexit is actually implemented, is the broader issue for our democracy that we need to try and um, bring back together, because I think that's really sort of what the next story is in effect. I mean, one of the things that was interesting with the Brexit campaign was where you had people like Cave T. Hopkins. Mm. I mean, looking back, because you know, you're a staunch Brexiteer, do you think that that was actually a mistake? by the Leave campaign, because then it was very, very easy for people in the Remain campaign mm. to go, well, it's obviously racist. Mm. You know, look at the fact that, you know, Katie is go going on TV and saying, frankly, intolerant things. Mm. No, I mean, it was, there's definitely the case that there's, always, there's going to be people on the side of something good who do it for bad reasons. I mean, there's, there's always going to be examples of that. Um, and I think it's important not to smear the majority of a particular position on the basis of what some, you know, people with ill intent actually want to want to do with that kind of thing. I think in relation to the Brexit question, the thing that made that more potent um, was the fact that the left had completely abandoned the cause of Euroscepticism. I mean, Spike, broadly speaking, comes out of a left-wing Eurosceptic tradition. And even at the time of the referendum, the Labour Party was being led by someone, Jeremy Corbyn, who spent his entire political life being a staunch Eurosceptic, a hard Brexiteer in the current kind of language. Mm. And the fact that even various kind of commentators, people who write for, you know, newspapers um, who had previously been of that kind of left-wing Eurosceptic hue abandoned it because they effectively lost their bottle. And I think they gave in to this very specious argument that just because you so happen to, believe, to agree with someone like Katie Hopkins on this one particular issue does not mean you're tainted by that. But I think 
unfortunately, just by dint of their own kind of cowardice, they effectively abandoned the field. And that made it so much easier for people to say, well, look who's on that side. You know, that's what that side is all about. But I think, that, again, with the referendum campaign, one of the best things to come out of it is that people in voting leave, and even people who voted remain, given you see the number of people who still think it's something that should be implemented and, uh, and uh, you know, whilst they might be concerned about it, know that that must be done, is that I don't think they've bought into that kind of, that kind of guilt by association. And I think the result kind of proves how the attempts to do that um, really don't wash with most people. I think they see right through it. You know what troubles me with this whole Brexit? conversation. It's the fact you're going home, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Russ, is, Russ is not in the EU, mate. No, mate he's as far as I'm nice, concerned, nice mate. Try. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, you know what troubles me with this whole Brexit mm. thing is uh, we actually had a meeting with some, uh, I'm not going to name names, but we had a meeting with someone who I really respect, who mm. both Francis and I voted Remain, mm. uh, and, and she voted Leave. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about you know, what we're doing, the show, whatever, and she mm. was like, well, you guys are Remainers, I'm a, I'm a Brexiteer. And I didn't say anything at the time, but I actually thought that is an incredibly unhelpful way that we talk mm. about each other because I'm not a Remainer. Mm. I voted to remain. Mm. But that doesn't make me an identity of a person who is Remain. I'm not out there campaigning yeah. to reverse the referendum or whatever mm. Whatever people put to that label. I, I just voted to remain. Mm. You know, maybe I had no clue which way to vote. Maybe I flipped a coin on the day. You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 how yeah. do you know that I'm a Remainer? Mm -hmm. what, what, what does it mean that you're a Brexiteer? Mm. You know, we, we've got these rigid identities. Now, what if I change my mind? What mm -hmm. if I'd suddenly go, yeah, you know what, Brexit is a great idea. We'll send Francis back to Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? Mm. So th that's what troubles me is this rigidity of identities almost. We've become like different tribes. Mm. Uh, and there is not the kind of, like, you know, you voted to leave, we voted mm. to remain. We can still have a conversation. Mm. We don't need to think about each other as different species of animal. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting because I think the big divide now, broadly speaking, is between Democrats and anti-Democrats. I think whether you're a Remainer or a Leaver ceased to mean much on the 24th of June 2016. I mean, it's, I think the, the reason that people speak so much about the idea that there's, this, there's these two tribes still... Um, that the country is more divided than it's ever been, which I think you just can't substantiate, um, is driven by the fact that they're trying to effectively use people who voted Remain as a kind of stage army against implementing the results. Mm. Whereas if you look at polling, if you look at the electoral um, failures of, say, the Liberal Democrats who kind of paint themselves as we can hoover up this 48% and got one of their worst results, you know, yeah. in recent years, I think just speaks to the fact that most people cease to be Remainers or Leavers on that question. Most people know that when a a referendum of this magnitude is taken that of course the thing has to be implemented and I think a lot of this talk about division I just don't really see it most people who voted leave know a lot of people who voted remain and vice versa we're not beating each other up in the streets and it's just I think often that kind of all of that question about division and the idea that um, yes there are these kind of two tribes I think it's only really in elite circles that that's kind of talked about mainly because they don't have much experience outside of those quite rarefied circles oh come on but do you not be naive there Tom cynical. are you not being naive and saying that people aren't divided I mean I know lots of people mm. who, who don't speak to their parents or don't speak to their sister or their brother or other. some people got divorced over this thing. I, I hear anecdotes about this but I just don't see it personally now that's anecdote versus anecdote I right. suppose but then the only thing the thing I would stack up next to that is again if you look at the kind of the polling for all of this and so far as 7 out of 10 people think that the vote should be implemented that's much higher than the 52 percent and that can't just be remainers who suddenly think leave is a great idea either um, and I just feel like there's there's a tendency particularly on the kind of continuity remain campaign side to present the um, 
what is effectively a very slim part of the population as actually far bigger than it actually is. And I think this calls for this talk about division just plays into that too neatly. I'm not saying that people didn't have these issues over Brexit. I'm sure it did happen in certain circles, but on the extent that it's being talked about, I just don't really buy it, I guess. Why is Brexit such a good idea? <laughs> I mean, like everybody goes, oh, you know, I hear so much about it. Yeah. I voted Remain because, in all honesty, I'm, I'm quite conservative mm. and I'm quite an anxious person. I'm like, well, we're doing pretty well within the EU. Mm. Why Did change you say it? you're quite conservative? I always knew you were a Tory. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in my, in my, in my here, yeah, it finally yeah. comes out. Yeah, crush your poor. Tory scum. Yeah, Tory scum, hashtag. No, um, I just I just thought that why change a winning formula? This country was doing well under the EU, mm. I thought, anyway. I, th I think there's, there's various different arguments kind of involved in it, so I'll, I guess I'll just pick out one, and that is the democratic argument, insofar as in myriad ways the European Union limits democracy, you know, from everything we've talked about from effectively from many positions of left or right, if, if you just want simply to control your borders, which isn't necessarily even a right-wing position, but one that a lot of people on the right are, con are concerned about, you can't do that as a member of the European Union. And that's a policy which we have adopted irreversibly by dint of being EU members that we cannot have any control over whilst we're still members. Similarly, if you take even something like some of the policies, pretty light social democratic policies that someone like Jeremy Corbyn wants to implement, state aid, etc., you couldn't implement that whilst being a member of the European Union. And that the entirety of the kind of structure is designed to limit the scope of politics within member states and also becomes very helpful for our elected politicians um, to effectively um, outsource responsibility for various things that they used to have to do in relation to a country, decisions they had to take, ideas they had to think about, um, to this distant bureaucracy who would effectively do it for them. And I think the main thing is it's a question of D democracy control self-determination that comes with risks because who knows what might be around the corner but at the same time considering how the European project has been panning out over the past 10 years I don't think we can say that Brexit um, is the only risky option either but I think it all comes down to a point that again kind of as we were talking about kind of the strange death of left Euroscepticism but t you know Jeremy Corbyn's great hero Tony Benn said was that he'd rather have a bad parliament than a good king and I think that's a crucial argument in relation to Brexit and why despite who knows what will happen next, that's the main reason why I think we were right to vote to leave, and that's the ultimate promise of it, it's just more control of ordinary people over the people who govern them. But, I mean, t doesn't it feel at the moment, and maybe, again, I'm buying into mainstream media, mm. it, it just feels like there's chaos. I mean, like there's the issue with the border in Northern Ireland. Mm. Nobody really knows what's going on with that. The fact that uh, I was reading an article about the, you know, the, the Kent... Uh, with Dover, with the port, there's going to be massive issues. People talking about the army coming in with supplies. <laughs> We're going to run out of insulin. Do you know what I mean? I, I, is it worth it? I mean, it's, well, first of all, I think we have to take some of these prognostications with a bit of pinch of salt. I mean, some of the things that are being talked about at the moment were things that we actually heard during the Remain campaign itself about what would happen immediately after a Brexit vote. You know, the idea that there would be instant recession, that there would be problems in relation to bringing things into the country. These are things that we have heard before. And the, I mean, the fact that people are effectively saying that pe people will die if this happens. Whenever someone makes that kind of a claim in politics, and they're not actually talking Death about a war, actually <laughs> <laughs> if they're not talking about a war, then you've got to question that, yeah. those kinds of arguments. It's, it's just classic fear mongering. But I think in relation to how, how chaotic things are, I think a lot of that speaks to the fact that, first of all, Brexit was never going to be an easy process. Um, because of the fact that the European Union does not want this to be a success for us. Um, their main concern is not even their own economic self-interest. It's holding the project together. And if Brexit or leaving the European Union begins to look like something which is, you know, a bit of a rocky road, but something which isn't necessarily going to um, be too difficult, and of course there's going to be many countries, 
many places on the continent are far more Eurosceptic than Britain even is, um, to start considering it as a viable option. But I actually think the fact that it was always going to be difficult, and it's been exacerbated by the fact that it's being negotiated by the political class we rejected in voting for Brexit. Um, most people, not only in this government, but in Parliament, don't actually agree with it. And at the very worst, even if, at the very best rather, even if they know that it has to be implemented, are terrified of actually implementing it. So I think the extent to which there is a lot of chaos and uncertainty, I think it speaks to the fact that there has been this very fearful, uncertain, and often quite botched approach to actually implementing it. So we should take a lot of this with a pinch of salt, but also just recognise that this is the battle that we have on our hands by dint of trying to actually force through something and get our politicians to implement something that none of them actually wanted in the first place. See, if you want Brexit to happen, you need a real Brexiteer. Yeah, you, need you need to get elected yeah. to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got yeah, a yeah, real Brexiteer. Uh, there's one question I've got to ask you. What does yeah. everyone who do, who gets involved in Brexit get gets fired? It feels like a cheap horror movie. Suddenly the character turns up, they're dead. The next one turns up, they're dead. <laughs> it just keeps going on. What's going on? So you're talking about particularly like people in cabinet or the people uh, well, kind of in the... David Davis. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, loads of them just seem to turn up for a couple of weeks and then just leave again. <laughs> I mean, it's, right now, I mean, this might change, as you say, in a matter of days, but all of the main offices of state are held by people who voted Remain, some of which right. campaign quite peacefully for Remain. Um, and I think it just gets to the point of, first of all, the fact that um, there's been this assumption that the Tory party is kind of the party of Brexit, but it never has been. A majority of Tory MPs voted for Remain, um, and even though the party membership is, broadly speaking, quite Eurosceptic, it's, it's certainly not that way on the higher levels. And I think it just speaks to the fact, on the one hand, I think uh, the kind of um, inability of a lot of people who, even though they presented themselves as the kind of heroes and the leaders of Brexit, people like Boris Johnson, failed really to kind of stand up for it when it really mattered, were too likely to kind of capitulate in so many situations, which made their positions increasingly untenable, I think. But it also, I think, just speaks to the fact that, um, again, the core contradiction, you make a vote against a political class, it's now left for a political class to implement. And I think the fact that people are dropping like flies, I think, speaks to the fact that they're increasingly proving themselves either unwilling or unable, actually, to kind of implement this as much as people wanted it to be. So. And can we make a success of hard Brexit? Because everything I've read about it, apparently mm. it's going to be the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, this is what's so strange about it, because the idea that it's going to be kind of economic Armageddon for all times. I mean, the proportion of trade that we did with the European Union has been decreasing over the past you know, 15, 20 years as trade with the rest of the world is increasing. Obviously, the process of leaving quite abruptly would have effects. No one's saying that there wouldn't be. But at the same time, the one thing, the main, th first of all, I, d I think the kind of Armageddon claims just don't, fully stack up um, and I think that can be slightly ludicrous but also I think actually Brexit voters in particular had no illusions when they voted I mean there's various bits of research which suggest that most Brexiteers when they voted for that particularly in the short term it would make the economy about as good or maybe a little bit worse because you know we're separating ourselves out of this entire legal and trading order that we've been intertwined with for decades but nevertheless I think what the vote showed was the fact that short-term economic instability um, a little trouble at the ports, um, certain things being things that we have to kind of contingency plan for, etc., is a pretty small price to play for self-determination. And I think it's, it's pretty upsetting that it feels like that pretty basic democratic principle is something that so many people in the elite feel uncomfortable with and think is so strange and reckless. All right, well, l let's move on a little bit. I wanted to ask you, you've debated Ash... Is it Sarka? I can't remember. Sarka. 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 Yeah. Who, who recently made headlines because mm. she went on the Piers Morgan, Susanna Richo, and mm. uh, talked about how she's literally a communist. Mm. 
what do you make of the rise of this kind of new socialism in the world mm. where, you know, for me coming from Russia, I mean, I personally see no difference between someone saying I'm literally a communist mm. and saying I'm literally a Nazi. Mm. To me, there is no difference between those two ideologies are responsible for a similar number of deaths in the world. Communism probably has claimed more lives, actually, mm. uh, certainly in my country. Mm. You know, uh, what do you make of the fact that it's perfectly normal now for people to go on TV and go, yeah, I'm a communist? It's luxury communism. Luxury communism. Luxury communism. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's what they call it these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a new really brand. I think it actually speaks to the... F I think the fact that um, people are selling T-shirts with I'm literally a communist on them, people are going on, what was it, Good Morning Britain and mm. declaring themselves communists, it, it effectively underscores the death of communism um, just because of the fact that it's become an incredibly safe and meaningless category for, you know, self-styled radicals in the West. I mean, first of all, because a lot of people in this kind of... Um, this fully automated luxury communism crew. They're openly campaigning for Jeremy Corbyn. And it was always a kind of principle of the kind of, you know, the far left that the, it was almost worse to support the Labour Party because they were holding back, you know, the kind of glorious revolution that was to come. So a lot of these people calling themselves communists are spending their entire days advocating for a pretty milquetoast social democrat. So I think there's a there's an element of posturing and projection in a lot of this, to, to be honest. But at the same time, I think there is a, there's a tendency, especially in the kind of right-wing reaction to a lot of those... Um, statements to give them a little more credit than they actually have to paint them as more radical more dangerous you know um more serious than they actually are when broadly speaking i think the way in which marxism and communism have kind of become just poses that people strike it's something that gets written up in teen vogue as happened with the ash Sarka thing i think speaks to the fact that it's Lenin's just become favorite publication <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible so but you don't think she wants to organize a, a, a system of gulags in, I don't in the UK. So. I don't think so, no, and I don't think any of the people saying this stuff would be capable of such a thing in the first place. <laughs> I think it's just, unfortunately, I think the uh, a lot of left-wing labels, whether it's communism, Marxism or whatever, have been stripped of a lot of their content. They've just been fashion accessories that I think a lot of people don. Um, and I think in some respects, the kind of, the reaction to it gives them more credit than a lot of these people actually deserve. What they're pushing is far more boring than they like to do. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you say it because uh, you'll know that uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who mm. was just uh, elected in America, yeah. uh, I, I've li I listened to a few, a few of her interviews. I'm, I'm not sure she knows a lot uh, much about what she's talking about, many issues. But mm. one of the questions that was asked to her, she gave a very cogent answer, which I thought was quite relevant. She was asked why young people are increasingly going for things like social... Uh, you know, mm. becoming social democrats or democratic socialists, yeah. socialism, socialism. Um, and she said that if you look at young people, say people who, uh, who are in their 20s now, for example, they've never experienced the benefits of capitalism in the same way mm. that our generation, people in their 30s or mm -hmm. people older than that have. They, they came of age after the 2008 crash. Mm. So all they know really is expensive housing, mm. economic instability, lack of jobs, lack of future. So what they're seeing is a world that doesn't work for them. Mm. They're seeing a world in which their future is likely to be worse than their parents. Mm. Um, and that's why they're looking at these policies that, and these parties that represent in their minds, at least mm. theoretically, an opportunity for a fairer society. Mm. Did you buy into that argument? Do you think young people are persuaded by that for that reason? I think there's definitely an argument with that. I think, the, for instance, take something like the housing crisis, mm. which is um, a huge issue in, in the UK and no one ever seems to be able to grapple with. It, this is a big problem for the right, I think, because you can't expect um, people without any capital to be pro-capitalist. I mean, mm. it just doesn't make any sense. Um, but nevertheless, I think, to be honest, what 
to be slightly more cynical about the kind of rise of this sort of new form of socialism, this new left-wing progressivism, not only because I think the extent of it is often a bit exaggerated, um, but also it feels like what it means to be a socialist, which historically is quite an important and in many, um, at many points positive doctrine, has been watered down. You know, you take someone like Ocasio-Cortez, what she's talking about is basically NHS, free education. I mean, these are not particularly radical ideas. It speaks to how narrow the political culture in the US often is, mm. that these things are seen as such. But that's kind of quite but limited. But she does say things like capitalism has had its day and stuff like that. I know, but it's, it's empty sloganeering. And mm. I mean, and for instance, a lot of the people who are very excitable around the Corbyn movement feel that they're effectively anti-capitalist, but what they would be voting for is not necessarily going to be a, a kind of revolutionary programme. You know, I mean, it's the sort of thing where I think there's a bit of a failure of political labels in relation to this stuff. And I also think that there's been a bit of a danger that left-wing politics and socialism, or being a Corbyn Easter, has kind of become its own breed of identity politics. Mm. It often feels quite shallow. It often feels like the, the centre of it is not entirely clear. And it often just becomes about, I'm a good person and you're not. There's, there's, a, there's an element to that which I think is really key. It often feels about posture rather than substance. And I think one perfect example about that is the fact that everyone's saying that they're really pro-Corbyn, really pro-policies, and yet a lot of them are pro EU, something which would render those policies completely inert. Um, so I think it just speaks to the fact that, largely speaking, what it means to be a socialist has kind of been defined down to some extent. Um, and at the same time, I think that it's unfortunately been absorbed as a kind of, at least for young people, as a kind of another form of identity politics. So I think we, we should kind of temper a lot of the uh, slightly either excitable or terrified response that a lot of these new movements have. I think they're slightly different from what people think they are. Because one thing I've seen that I've just been baffled by is just a backlash against centrists. Mm. And then, like, you know, they demean centrists, so it's almost like another extension of the alt-right. I'm like, what? <laughs> the kind of centrist dad's phenomenon. Yeah. And it works the other way around. Like, we have like we have people calling us cucks because mm. we are not right-wing, because we are mm. centrist. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so it kind of comes from both ways. It's mm. like, if you're not on an extreme... You are evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there is, a, there is a lot of that going on. I think the, the one thing I would say about that is that obviously it's ridiculous um, and there's been this kind of attempt to, by both sides to kind of just suggest that, you know, if you happen to be in the centre of politics, that makes you complicit in X, Y, Z. You know, there's all, this, there's all these kind of things. If you're on the sort of centre of the Labour Party, you're effectively a Tory. All this kind of stuff is just a bit infantile and a bit embarrassing. But I think the one thing um, that's important to... Uh, recognises the fact just because we live in this age where you do have kind of crazy people it feels like on the extreme shouting at each other and into the darkness all the time about things that don't really much seem important it doesn't necessarily mean that the centre is always the most you know the position that everyone should hold mm. I think it's fair to say that you could have a radical left-wing politics say that wasn't batshit crazy in the same way that it is possibly that you can have progressive politics which is aimed at really fundamentally changing society that doesn't mean either gulags or ridiculous identity politics you know it, it just feels like the one thing that I really wouldn't want people to take away from the very strange climate for debate and discussion that we're in at the moment is the idea that splitting the difference is always the right way. Because if anything, the the Brexit revolt, for instance, is really a rejection of that kind of politics on some level. Not just centrism, but I think something which is always particularly in nature of politicians and political parties that has come with centrism, which is this new technocracy, the belief that it's better to kind of outsource power to unaccountable bodies, etc. European Union being an example of it. So I think on the one hand, whilst it feels like so few people are being reasonable and there's this kind of reasonable people like yourselves in the centre, that's not to say the fact that um, being more radical in certain ways is necessarily a dirty word. And I think in fact, in many respects, Brexit is an example of something which is radical and which could actually change society for the better, along, you know, against some of the kind of slightly more centrist or technocratic trends that we've been seeing in the last kind of 20, 30 years.
All right. Well, thanks for, for speaking with us. Uh, the final question we always mm. like to ask is, is there one thing that no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about? I think for that I would say, what next? And I mean that in relation to Britain, in relation to Europe and America. Just we've, Over the last couple of years, we've seen all these kind of revolts against the establishment. Mm. Um, they've taken different forms in different places. Sometimes they've empowered people that we don't like. Sometimes they've been something like Brexit, which was just a kind of leaderless, you know, bottom-up type of revolt. But I think the question for anyone who's interested, not just in something like Brexit, but the bigger question about how do you make societies more democratic, open? Um, how do we make sure that people are more kind of involved in how these societies are shaped and that the terms of the debate aren't set either by a vocal minority or by the elites? Um, I think the question is, what comes after this? How do we carve out a, a new politics for a new age? And it feels like all the old politics are knackered. And I think that um, that at the moment is the most interesting question that anyone interested in democratic, also progressive politics should be trying to answer as broad as that is. <laughs> Great. Uh, before you go, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or promote, Tom? Twitter handle? Twitter handle. Well, I'm at Tom underscore Slater underscore, but also people should, of course, go and check out Spiked Online. We're um, spiked-online.com, and our Twitter handle is at Spiked Online. So if, not just for Brexit, free speech, but um, the whole gamut of issues, you'll find plenty to read there. Cool. Brilliant. And... Uh, I'm at Constantin Kisson on Twitter. I'm at Failing Human. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, as always, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And most, most importantly, if you've already subscribed, uh, click that bell right next to the subscribe button to make sure you get notified every time we release a video. Thank you very much for tuning in, as always, and we'll see you in a week's time. Bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.